Hey everyone ever, and welcome to 20th Century Popcast, the show where we try to understand the present while living in the past. My name is Tim Blevins, and Bob, uh, Bob Canning, has strep throat. My co-host is sick, so he's out today. Um, I hope he's feeling better, but uh, he is out today, which means possibly you are about to check out, because when Bob isn't here on the show, uh, that often means a lengthier podcast uh, about um, Howard the, the Duck, but not today. Not today, listeners. Don't, don't worry. Today we are not uh, retreating that monologue uh, for Mallard, no. Uh, today, this particular episode on this particular day, I am going to be taking a look in real time at, um, at a different comic book adaptation, one that might uh, pique your interest, one of a venerable and ever popular character, and, you know, probably not the uh, particular film version of this character you, you, you might want to hear about, Batman and Robin, 1997's Batman and Robin. Joel Schumacher's Batman and, and Robin Nail in the original franchise Coffin, uh, Batman and Robin. Yes, I am choosing that uh, movie as today's topic. Hmm. And in a little segment that we have done a few times now uh, called Unsolicited Commentary, it's uh, what I'll be doing is a feature-length audio track that you can sync up to your own DVD or digital copy or, or, or coloring book adaptation of the film to hear me talk over about and, and enduring. But, but uh, you know, so please uh, don't, don't tune out yet or, or however it is you turn off a, a podcast. I don't know the, the lingo uh, for that, but, but, but don't, but don't leave because I want you to hear me out. I know that Batman and Robin is considered one of the worst um, comic book films of, of all time. And, you know, in, in 1997, the year that it came out, uh, I agreed, which is actually saying a lot because in 1997, we didn't have that many comic book uh, movies, you know, that, that decade, I guess. There had been Dick Tracy, The Rocketeer, Tank Girl, a couple of Ninja Turtles, but that's not a lot compared to the uh, annual output of current superhero movies. So it's odd to me that, that in 1997, without much to go on, that any comic book movie would be a bad comic book movie because as a comic book fan that's what i wanted a movie based on these things i loved reading but this one this particular uh film batman and robin this somehow failed and i suppose we could talk about that because everyone always talks about that or we could take a look uh well i i could take a look at at, at how this film Batman and Robin, how, how in a modern context, it is actually a brilliant commentary. And further, I think if it had been um, animated at the time of its release, and maybe a character swapped Batman and Robin out for uh, The Tick and Arthur, this movie might have been one of the most entertaining big screen spectacles of the late uh, 
the late 90s. But uh, instead of talking here in this intro, let's let's talk about it during the movie because regardless of the visuals, I'm sure you don't want to listen to Batman and and Robin. So here it goes. Uh, grab your digital analog or live script uh, shadow box reading version of the film. Cue it up to the very start and immediately after hitting play on your copy, hit pause on your copy. Then on this track, this, this podcast track, you will hear a sequence of five single toned beeps followed by a higher toned sixth beep. Um, and after that sixth uh, beep, unpause the movie and whatever I will then be saying I uh, should hope, hopefully reflect uh, the film you're watching. Got it? Easy and almost worth the effort. So uh, enjoy the next two hours and five minutes because, uh, you know, I'm going to be talking during it. <clears throat> it's a fancy shield. We know it from Warner Brothers. Uh, I'm thank you for listening to me watch and listen to this movie. I don't know if you're putting it together with that. It looks like a mouth eating the word war. Oh, it's the bat insignia. It's the bat insignia. It just looks cold because it's on ice. Um, we're talking Batman and Ro- Jesus. That's loud. We're talking Batman and Robin, which means we're talking a very flashy opening sequence with lava. Mister Freeze is the main villain, so the red. The red clouds don't make sense. I, I'm sorry. I'm a little distracted because I'm so mad right now at my pop filter. With this this weird uh, screen that goes in front of the microphone to try to catch the spit sounds. The spit tooting of, of my mouth keeps falling off. So that may happen during this. I don't remember that. Robin has an insignia. It's a bird insignia. I don't remember that from the comics. I remember the letter R. Not sure when that happened, but it's here. Batman and Robin, 1997. I saw this film, this movie, this superhero flick. Uh, I saw it opening day. I saw it in Boston. I, I, I was there's somebody's ass. Um, I was working at a Starbucks. I had taken the day off so that I could go see it opening day. It was early evening. I was big into that by that point in my life. I was big into seeing opening day movies. And this was a big deal. Batman had been a very successful trilogy prior to this movie, 1989's Tim Burton won 1992's Batman Returns, which maybe is the one I should have been talking about. But Batman Forever, two years prior to this, with both Batman here, played by George Clooney, who looks the part, looks okay in the part, but the last previous film had been Val Kilmer prior to Michael Keaton. But this guy, Chris O'Donnell, was introduced as Robin, as some sort of cool version of a character that I don't think people were demanding. I don't think people necessarily needed Robin, but that, and I think at that point in my life, Batman had gone through a good 10 years of kind of being solitaire on his own. And the movies were reflecting that, you know, we had the TV show in the, the sixties, Batman and Robin, and it was kind of this billionaire playboy and his playboy in training kind of thing. And then, you know, in, in the seventies and even on this, you know, the cartoons, the super friend cartoons, you had a duo, a crime fighting duo, dynamic duo, and it seemed inescapably campy. So these movies had worked hard to keep Robin out of it. That's kind of where the comic book community was in the late 80s and early 90s, I, at least from what I remember. We didn't want a Robin with our Batman. I didn't. Maybe we should say I. 
I wanted the Dark Knight to be a lone vigilante. I wanted him, Bruce Wayne, to be on his own and not to be worrying about this sidekick. And these movies were a great reflection of that. I say these movies. It was just two movies where Batman, really, if you add up all his screen time between Batman and Batman Returns, is that enough to 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 reference him as a as an ongoing character? That I don't know. That I really don't know. Because he's not the main character in Batman and Batman Returns. But here, I mean, we, we get we get Robin. We got Robin in Batman Forever. And Batman Forever was a break from tradition a little bit. Tradition just being two movies. And that this gothic look that Tim Burton had designed, this exaggerated comic book inaccurate take where you're, you're, you're taking characters that are known and known very well. You're taking your, your, your comic book kin and, and you're, you're putting them on the big screen in, in a way or in a fashion that's different because that's how comic book movies used to work. You know, there would be key elements. And again, 1990s, we didn't have that many comic book movies. We, we, you know, Superman was big in the 70s, but before Batman in 89, there wasn't a whole lot kind of at that point, at that level. So the way it would work is you would have the recognizable characters. So you'd have the costume, you'd have aspects of their origin story, and you'd put it in a movie and, and you'd build something new out of it, which is fine. I know I'm talking over puns here. I just talked over the first pun of the film i'm sorry boku but um you 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 know the first batman movie played heavily with the origin and heavily with the joker now being involved in it and all this stuff but but that was just understood because you were appealing to i guess a different audience back then i don't think you were going for the comic book audience you were trying to get the mainstream audience and maybe that's why there weren't too many comic book movies being made because the mainstream audience didn't want that but by the time we get to Batman Forever, I don't know. I feel like they were amping up the flashy comic book look of it. And again, Batman Forever, the one before this, you could say is more inspired by the TV show. But I think as Batman and Robin, the one we're watching right now, proceeds, you're going to see that's the 60s camp show. That's a man. That's kind of like the Flintstones. Like when Fred gets off of work, he does the same dinosaur tail bit. It's dramatic when Fred Flintstone does it. It was a little silly to see Batman do it. Batman has a history with dinosaurs. There's that T-Rex, Tyrannosaurus Rex, supposedly in the Batcave. I don't know if they could have set that up here maybe somehow. It would have been interesting. But um, what was I going to say? So coming out of the Tim Burton Batmans, Batman Forever was willing to kind of break up a little bit of this necessary grimness that Tim Burton or gothicness, whatever it was, the Tim Burton circus mentality that Tim Burton's previously dark version now considered probably a little, a little more ridiculous as time has gone version. Uh, Joel Schumacher came on board of Batman Forever to direct a movie that was a little more accessible because the first Batman was huge. It was an immense monster hit. Batman Returns, while it made its money, was, was really divisive at the box office. And someday I'll, I'll talk about that on the podcast because Batman Returns is, is an amazing film. It's not a good Batman movie, but it's a great movie. Um, but I think... The studio was nervous and they wanted to get something a little more accessible to the audience, something that was just surprisingly a little more comic booky. And so they enlisted Jill Schumacher. They um, Michael Keaton stepped down, so they brought in Val Kilmer and they gave us Jim Carrey and they gave us bigger vehicles and they gave us a flashier city. There's a lot, and we'll see in this one too. Gotham has become this weird neon designed, I don't know 
not gothic place. It's a beautiful set. When we see more of it, we'll talk about it. But but I guess what I'm getting at is Jill Schumacher came aboard as director of Batman Forever and changed the film, changed it enough that it was a huge box office hit in a different way. It was considered fun. People went to the Batman movie to have fun. I don't think people were having fun necessarily with Batman Returns in the same way. I think Batman Returns is this perverse sexual examination of cosplaying. Before, that was kind of a, a, a common spoken thing. And I think that's great for that reason. And then the first Batman w- was, was 1989's version of Grimm and Dark in a time when Grimm and Dark could mean that. So... Jill Schumacher, while we're talking this long before talking about the movie, which I'm about to get into, it's one of the lay the groundworks that Jill Schumacher came on board. And I think the whole thing was to lighten it up, lighten up the film a little, make it a little more, I don't know, kid friendly, audience friendly. And he did. And to do that, one of the things he did is he brought in Robin. This character, there he is, skating with a giant diamond in his hand. Um, Sorry, I guess I might stop every time a pun hits. But uh, they brought Robin in to kind of give Batman more of a fatherly feel and to create this duo and to create an accessible character because Batman's an older man. If you want kids to watch the movie, I guess the idea was you give them someone who does motocross, ice skates, and wears a leather jacket, which is not at all what Robin was to me, but that was the Robin they gave us. And that movie did well. I don't know if it's because of the introduction of Robin. I don't know the world's view of Chris O'Donnell. I don't know if he was considered attractive then. I don't know what he's considered now. He does that show with LL Cool J. But Joel Schumacher succeeded in making Batman a little more fun on the big screen. And it it was a surprise. And I think coming off of the prior two Batman and Batman Returns, it was still, it was a different tone, but it was still maybe dark enough to still be the sort of grim. There wasn't anything else out there. That's the thing. There weren't other comic book movies. There was Dick Tracy, I guess, The Rocketeer a couple years before, but there there, there weren't other movies competing with it. So you could still call Batman Forever the dark comic book, even though it had a lot of jokes in it. Joel Schumacher directed that, and then it did so well that they they pushed this movie, the one we're watching now, Batman and Robin, to be made. Uh, it's usually back then, anyways, and this has changed. But back then, three years was kind of your wait between sequels, was your standard wait. It would take three years to make a follow-up, if not more. Uh, Batman, The Batman Returns, The Batman Returns, The Batman Forever, each had been a succession of three years. This, they rushed right, very quickly into production. Um, I think it began, you know, they, they, would, they would have been writing it in 95, which is when Batman Forever came out. They started filming it at the end of 96. It was done at the beginning of 97 and released. So it was all of a two-year from start to finish production period to make this film. And so I don't know what they were going on. I don't know what the idea was. They knew some things that were working. People like they assumed liked the Batman and Robin dichotomy. People they assumed like liked the cartooniness of Jim Carrey, the goofiness of that, the exaggerated. I mean, look at this right now. Gotham is sprawling. It's a giant metropolis, and we've got a rocket with all these blue lights flashing. There are always lights flashing in these movies, and it's just I don't know. It's it's a very bright and colorful. The colors that they use are a little, I don't know, they're very neon. And and the idea, I guess, was that people liked that. So as we go into Batman and Robin, they upped all of that. And while maybe these lines that Dr. Freeze, Mr. Freeze, are saying read a little grimmer um, on the page, they're goofy. They're campy. This movie 
immediately embraces camp, and it was derided for that. We'll say it right off the bat now. This movie, and I do have the experience of seeing it opening day, not from the trailers, not from the toys, not from any of the lead-up, but from the movie itself, this movie disappointed most fans. I have not encountered someone who enjoyed this movie. I I I don't know if kids want to see it. That's cool, by the way. Mr. Freeze's flying ice suit wings are pretty cool. But um, the experience that I had anyways, going to opening night, loving Batman, being exciting for Batman. Everybody knows Batman. They know these movies. The experience of this film was one of massive excitement prior to the start. A crowd that was cheering when the insignias came on in those opening credits. And an audience that as the movie continued sat politely, sat quietly, eventually sat very apathetically and almost in silence. I remember as the movie proceeded, the theater was pretty quiet. Opening day is probably a lot of comic book fans, some families, people who just like the thrill of movies that get caught up in it, probably a lot of t-shirts with the emblem on it. And this movie, prior to the previous three, did not about, that looks just like the Death Star explosion. I wonder if it was. Probably not. Explosions could look similar, Tim, just like popcorn looks similar. But um, they're air, by the way, they're, they're surfing right now on surfboards in the sky. Something extreme. The 90s had this a lot. And again, I this is probably exciting, right? With what we could do in the 90s, we, by the way, because I worked for no one, but what they could do. For special effects in the 90s, this is really good. It's a nice compilation of practical stunts and CGI and a Ninja Turtle catchphrase. I believe, Robin, if you're not watching this, just shouted Cowabunga as he surfs down the side of a building. It's dizzying to watch, but look, looking at this, I'm d- d- segueing out of what I was just saying, because I'm looking right now at a lot of CGI falling through the sky, flipping it and whatever. And I have to say, this actually holds up enough to modern CGI, because something I think that happens a lot of times with modern CGI is there's so much flipping and jumping around that it's hard to tell what is humanly, 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 humanly happening, because people's motions are are kind of against the laws of physics, and then what a digital reenactment of a camera can do breaks all expectations and understandings of what a real camera, the limits of a camera. Without those limits, it becomes hard to watch. And this movie, at this point with CGI's, at least for CGI's, like it's the Star Wars Bounty Hunter, CGI, G88, for CGI, computer-generated imagery. At this point, it was still limited enough that it was still mimicking how a real camera worked. You weren't necessarily, you're getting some fancy shots because the tumbling through the sky that they were doing, I don't think would have been achievable with with you know actual cameras and, and actual space but it wasn't fancy enough that they could do all the flips with the camera zip zooming back and forth zip zooming so it actually doesn't look it's easier to follow i guess is what i'm saying the cgi of them falling through the sky was easier to follow and this movie had a huge budget i'm sure backing it up so this was probably top of the line effects for the time but it's endearing plus there's still a lot of real sets. I mean, it's all set. I don't know if there's any real backgrounds in this movie of real places. It's a lot of sets working. Hello, Mr. Freeze. Thanks for waving. Um, but yeah, it's fun. It's comic booky. It's bigger than life. 
And I'm saying that because at the time, as this movie ended, this bigger than life, bigger than all the prior Batman movies, uh, when it played, that's not what we wanted. That's, that's not what an audience was looking for. We weren't looking, or they weren't looking, or, or someone, the, 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 the main, that looks ridiculous. I'm sorry, Frozen Robin. Poor actor. I'm really sorry, Chris O'Donnell. Although I like how your hair spiked up with the water. Why wasn't that your normal style? Um, by the way, here comes a Swamp Thing character. They put Jason Woodrow, a Swamp Thing villain, at least I know him as a Swamp Thing villain, at the top of this movie. Strange. Uh, again, I'll, I'll finish my point at some point. It's just Uma Thurman, the normally wonderful, talented actor, actress, performer, Uma Thurman, is possibly... I'm very sorry to say this, this is cruel because she is definitely doing something. She, I, I think she's the worst part of this movie. She's playing it campy. She thinks and knows the campiness of this film. But it's jarring because she's playing it as if she her character knows it. It's she's eventually she's playing uh oh my god, uh what is Poison Ivy's real name? I can't think of it right now. I, you know, if, if I could probably take, well, you'd hear the clicking, I'd look it up. I'm embarrassed that I'm forgetting. I know Pamela, Pamela Ivy is Poison Ivy's real name. She's playing Pamela Ivy right now, who will become Poison Ivy, who is not, who I guess at this point was a well known character because of the cartoon. Batman the Animated Series was airing, well, it was airing when Batman Forever was out, actually. So it introduced Mr. Freeze and introduced, or reintroduced Mr. Freeze, introduced Poison Ivy to a wider audience of people who probably didn't read the comics. And honestly, the Mr. Freeze in this movie, we wouldn't have had Mr. Freeze in this movie, we wouldn't have had the origin story that he has uh, without that cartoon, without the Batman animated series. They made wonderful characters out of Batman's rogue, rogue villains, what is it called? Rogue, rogue villains rogue what am i looking rogue villains <laughs> god what am i having a stroke because all these flashing lights uh rogues gallery that's what i'm thinking of they did very well with the rogues gallery of batman villains on the cartoon and it, it got i think the public more aware of people like poison ivy mr freeze man bat and more and so that cartoon i think influenced this enough but but what am I saying? Yes, Uma Thurman playing Poison Ivy. Actually, right there, John Glover, I think, playing Dr. Woodrow. Not playing any version of him other than by names. And that I guess he works with plants. Because Dr. Woodrow, if I'm correct, in the Swamp Thing, becomes the Floronic Man. Am I right about that? Right here, he's building a better Bane. You all remember Bane from The Dark Knight Rises. The violent anarchist villain that maybe was the hero all along in the film. That's not what he is here. Here he is a lubridore. Is that how? Luchadore? He's a wrestler. He's a bulky wrestler. He's kind of like if they took Rocksteady from the Ninja Turtles and removed the humorous elements. That's kind of what we're getting here. A mutant of just muscle being sold to racial stereotypes representing all the evil countries of the world, I guess. Bane was a pretty recent villain, and his appearance in this movie was kind of a shock. I know he was in the trailers, and it was one of those things where if you were a comic book fan, because I don't think Bane was so I don't think people knew Bane yet at the time of, 
of this movie very well, unless they're reading the comics. Bane is very famous in the comic books for having been the character in the early 90s who broke Batman's back. He he was this giant, giant muscle-bound um, drug fueled by this drug called Venom Strength and uh, Intelligent Assassin who, in a fight with Batman, broke his back and incapacitated Batman for a, a good run of the series during which other people took up the Batman mantle. And he was for that story. I think he was in other comics too. I knew him from that story. So to see him in a trailer, when the trailer for this movie played, the idea was that's the character who broke Batman's back. So so in a trailer, in the sense of the trailer, you see that and you think this movie's going to go dark. They're going to hurt Batman. They're going to break Batman because that's what Bane does. Or that's what he does in the comics. In this movie, he grunts a lot. Later on, he'll be wearing a gorilla suit. Um, I think he says his name a few times. He's not a good use of the character. And the expectation there, if you're a fan of the comic book and you see that Bane's going to be featured, you, you, you get excited because that's what Bane is to the comics. And Batman Forever, with the introduction of Two-Face, a very bad version of Two-Face, but nonetheless Two-Face, and a exaggerated version of the Riddler. But nonetheless, Batman Forever did something weird where people were tricked or people thought or considered that the movies were doing it right. You know, people love, or I love Catwoman and Batman Returns. And I think she's pretty close to the comic Catwoman or close enough. The Penguin is great in Batman Returns. He's not the Penguin from the comics, but he's enjoyable. But for some reason with Batman Forever, the segue there was we're going to start getting the um, the comic book characters as they are. So to see Bane, you'd go into this thinking, if Bane's there, this is going to be a dark story. And the movie doesn't claim it. The movie doesn't say it's going to be dark. But the presence of that character sets up for an audience this idea that uh, this is going to be the, the brutal Batman broken story. And here's Robin soaking his feet, so maybe it's the Robin broken version. But I, I guess I'm mentioning that, and I know I'm way off track of my first son. I'm mentioning that because I think that's inherently what worked against this movie. Batman Forever was a one-time chance where it balances perceived darkness and goofiness because it was new and it was different. And somehow it got, at least in my mind, that they're doing something different. We're going to get more comic booky, and that's going to be great. They're going to go all out comic booky because the movie had been hesitant about that. The Tim Burton ones are gothic cartoons, but they're not comic booky. So going into this, that's what I was expecting. That's what I thought. We're watching this Mr. Freeze origin story right now, which is the darkest this movie gets, maybe? They're following his story from, from the cartoons, which is he, his wife was very sick, so he put her in suspended animation, and he was doing some experiments to see if he could save her life, and during those experiments, he was exposed to some sort of chemical that turned him into the Sub-Zero Mr. Freeze character. The movie works around that, but again, it's such a dramatic storyline. That's what got people to notice the animated series cartoon. The Mr. Freeze origin story is this powerful, dark, grown-up, tragic tale with this wonderfully voiced uh, Mr. Freeze. I think Michael Anasara, is that his name, I think, voiced it. It was just such mature storytelling in a child's medium, a cartoon, 
that Mr. Freeze kind of became a go-to example of one of the more tragic Batman villains. So to see him in this movie and to see his story, again, you're coming into it thinking that we're going to get that. We're going to get the Batman we were primed for. Because in the 90s, the Batman to watch was the animated series. It knew the balance. And I think going into this, I thought it was going to have that. And this movie doesn't. All right. It's already pretty clear from the, I sorry, I talked over it and then acknowledged the faux hockey game that took place at a museum earlier where Batman and Robin have automatic skates that pop out of their suits and they're hitting this diamond around like a hockey stick. Sorry, I didn't talk about that, but that's what this movie is. And if that's your introductory scene, a jokey, comical, exaggerated scene, that's the tone of the movie. You don't, you don't retroactively back down from that. And maybe I thought it was going to because of this idea that Bane's in the movie that's hovering over your head. But this movie doesn't deliver on that. This movie doesn't deliver on the animated series version of Batman, which I guess is what I thought because Poison Ivy was in it, because Mr. Freeze was in it, because how else would you do Batman? You'd find this balance. So to to circle back to what I was trying to say prior to actually watching the movie, which is why you're listening to this in the first place. I apologize for that complication. Um, The reason I think the audience I was in on opening day was so quietly non-participatory and was so silent as the movie proceeded. And when the movie was over, I remember this very clearly, everyone kind of got up in unison Everyone kind of got up from their seats quietly. It was summer, but there were jackets, so they gathered their jackets. They politely picked up their popcorn tubs and their sodas. They left no mess or trace of being there. They all turned and walked out with no sound, with no talking, but no visible sign of having been thrilled by this mega social event. It was boring. It was... Not what they were expecting, and there was no inherent reaction to it. So people just walked out. And I think, including myself, as people thought more and more about it, more and more about the film, they realize not what the fuck was that, but that was shit, was the other swear, I guess. What am I saying here? I, 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 think, I think there was a bit of a shock, a, a polite, quiet shock to how the film went that wasn't what was expected so people walked out disengaged from it and then as word of mouth began as you tell someone hey i saw batman returns last night or somebody asked you hey what did you think i'm going tomorrow you slowly find yourself with nothing to say and this is a batman movie you know these are characters that you are supposed to love this is a summer event with big Actors, Schwarzenegger, Uma Thurman, Thurman, I guess I should say, because I didn't say Arnold's first name, George Clooney. You know, you've got all this, El McPherson, Pat Hingle, for Christ's sake. You've got all of this. So suddenly you're left with saying, well, it wasn't exciting. It wasn't the Jack Nicholson Joker. It wasn't the Jim Carrey Riddler. It wasn't the Michelle Pfeiffer Catwoman. It wasn't the gothic structure of the first movie, and it wasn't whatever was happening in Batman Forever. It was, thank you, Bane. Yes, it was garbage. And so I think because it wasn't all of these other things, it wasn't the animated series, and it wasn't anything with the prior movies, 
I didn't know. This is weird. I'm sorry. Here I am about to defend you, movie, and you do this. We're in Mr. Freeze's lair, and they're watching. They're watching The Year Without a Santa Claus, which I guess he can have on videotape, but he's showing it on multiple screens, and he wants people to sing it. I mean, he's good, Arnold Schwarzenegger. You're 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 good at this, but oh, that guy's got his tongue stuck on a what is it? A frozen dinner. Yeah, uh, indeed, Mister Freeze. Yeah, this this part's kind of hard to do. This is a little bit of a carryover of uh, the whole Two Face with his sugar and spices in uh, Batman Forever. But to get back to what I was saying, you are making this hard movie because I set out my goal in doing this commentary was, was was to look at this movie with new eyes and defend it, defend its very existence as something bigger and better than what we, we think of when we talk about it. But this scene is not really helping with that. It's kind of hard. Shutting Frosty didn't help either. Oh, God. Again, it looks great. This transfer looks great. These colors, this, these blues look great. <laughs> Positivity. But um, so, yeah, this movie wasn't the Batman we were expecting or wanted and didn't resemble any of the Batmans we were expecting. To find some something to ground this, to find like Mr. Freeze, who does seem kind of like a, if you don't know the cartoon, an exaggerated character to have in the movie, the Robin duality to to, to to have a point of reference you'd have to if you're just a moviegoer not a comic book fan you'd have to reach back to adam west's batman and robin you'd have to look back to that where it was campy where it was you did have mr freeze you did have batman and robin and that's not what people wanted so they didn't know what to take from this they didn't know what to get from this i think i don't think there we knew <laughs> how to laugh properly at the jokes in this. And so it was considered a failure of a movie because it wasn't part of the Batman saga. It's weird too, because the jump from Batman to Batman Returns and more so the jump from Bat that poor actress, this is all she does in the movie, isn't it? Float. The jump from Batman to Batman Returns and then Batman Returns to Batman Forever are probably more jarring than we remember. I think three years in between them helped the consistency of Michael Keaton helped. But going from Batman Returns to Batman Forever, th those aren't similar movies, but I guess they're similar enough that nobody thought different of them. But this movie just couldn't hold up. And so I think Batman and Robin was looked on as a joke because of these jokes, because of this tone, because of the flashiness of it. Because I guess a year later, you have George Clooney here looking very nice in a turtleneck, strangely, not looking like a penis as most people do in turtlenecks. But you had George Clooney, you had Joel Schumacher, the director, apologizing for the film. I think it got in our heads that this is just a bad superhero movie. And back then, we didn't have a superhero genre, really. I mean, I think the Spawn movie came out this summer, so there were two there. But I feel that's a dumb line. Chris O'Donnell. I know you didn't write it, but you delivered it. Do people like you, Chris O'Donnell? People do now. People very much like you on, uh, was it CSI and CIS SUV? Whatever you're on. That's hilarious, Tim. Your joke is hilarious. Whatever show you're on with LL Cool J, they like you on that. But, but, um, but here, I'm not so sure. But, but no, this wasn't what we wanted from a Batman movie, because Batman was kind of the only superhero movies we were getting. I guess Steel may have also come out this summer. Rough summer for comics. But that's the thing. 
that's all we had. Jump ahead to now, jump ahead to, or jump back 10 years. Since 2008, comic books have become a major piece of cinematic uh, real estate. Why is she carrying that leaf? Do you not have leaves in England? Drop it. Drop it, Alicia Silverstone. Just put it down. Thank you. Um, comic books are the main inspiration for movies with the Marvel movies, the DC movies, and and some of them fail, whatever. But I think we understand now the ups and downs of the genre because it's a genre. I think we understand how these characters exist. I think we get how you can have Thor, you know, as a, as a gritty Shakespearean origin story. Then you can have Thor Ragnarok as this bombastic, uh, Big Trouble Little China homage sort of sci-fi romp, to use a word I never use. And they can you can have them both because the character is is malleable. And it's odd, in 1997, Batman, I guess, wasn't malleable. So this is a bad Batman movie. But here's the thing, so is Batman Returns. And Batman Returns is one of my favorite Tim Burton movies. And it is my favorite of the Batman movies. But it's actually a bad Batman movie if you're going to it for Batman. If you're going to it as a look at how comic book costumes work, if you're going to look at it as sort of sexual play in costuming and and, and this exploration of other identities, which is what fandom is, which is what role-playing is, which is what smoking is, which is what talking about comic books is, which is what I did. You know, Batman Returns is fascinating in that level. This movie which is also a bad Batman movie. Here we are at 32 minutes in and 30 seconds. I'm going to go on record as saying this movie is a comment on genres, on action genres. I don't even know if it's a comment on comic book genres, but this movie is dissecting the very nature of an action movie. And it's doing it wonderfully. It, it is an actual piece of pop art because of how it looks. Okay, it's popular art, the way the Adam West one was. But this movie is constantly making you question the very film. If you come into this movie, a fan of Batman, knowing the, the characters and knowing the comics, you're going to be constantly questioning, wait, simple things like, Batgirl is Alfred's uh, 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 niece? Um Later on, we'll see that Batman has a, a credit card. That's a Batman credit card. This Poison Ivy talks like this. This is Mr. Freeze origin. So you're going to be questioning those things. If you're coming at it as 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 a action fan, you're going to be asking yourself, why are they skating? Why all these comical hijinks? Why all these pratfalls? If you're coming at it as just a filmmaker, you're going to be wondering why all the Dutch angles? Why this much money? Why this much flash? What's with the nipples on those costumes? You're going to constantly be questioning what you're given. To the point that you can never hold, there's nothing in this movie to ever hold on to stably. There's no grounding performance. See, like right now, this makes me think of the Tim Burton ones. Because you've got those giant statues shaped, you got the weird angle. And then you get Gossip Gertie, which just makes you think, what, when the fuck are we? When, what the fuck are we? What is going on? Ah, I'm sorry. I hate you in this movie, Poison Ivy. I know you're doing your performance thing. But it doesn't work in this movie. But Bane with a fedora doesn't work in any movie. So question that. 
But this is what I'm saying. What are you supposed to do with that? <laughs> Bane was, is her driver now? If you're a fan of the comics, you're wondering, why is Bane driving the car? If you're here for an action movie, you're wondering, well, who is that? And it's just, there's never a moment in this movie that you're allowed to just inhabit the world. And that should be bad. I get it. That should be jarring. That should be faulty filmmaking. But it's not. It's not in this because we're dealing with a character that we all know. That's the the get. Everybody knows Batman. I mean, not everybody knew Iron Man. Not everybody knows Thor. Not everyone knows Cyborg. Not every, very, very many people did not know Deadpool. I mean, you can do stuff with those characters because they're a little more malleable to, to or they, it would seem as if they're a little more malleable to the public. But someone like Bat, hilarious George Clooney. Ah, uh, he's so funny. But Batman, you know, more so, I think, than Superman, more so than Spider-Man. Batman is probably the most recognizable pop culture icon of the 20th century, I would say. I would say people know that perfect insignia. They know the look of the cape and cowl. They know the shape of Batman. He's just that well-known. So to give someone a movie about that... I don't know. There's something very malleable, again, about that character. Because Batman, this isn't the first time Batman has been in a campy piece of what some people would call crap. This movie got attacked, but 30 years prior to this film, the 60s, Batman was on TV and far, and not far campier. It's hard to be far campier maybe in this movie, but but the Batman TV show was just as ridiculous. And we look at it now as a piece of art, look at it now as an artistic comical take on things that used the Batman character, that used the character whose parents were killed to be this comical, shark-repellent central character. This movie's doing the same thing, but we just weren't ready for it at that point. We were caught up in it because we had the 60s one already. We wanted this dark Batman. But Batman can be multiple things. On the Super Friends, when he joins the Justice League. I mean, Batman was one of those characters. I mean, he had so many books coming out in a given month that he could be on the cover of one issue, you know, with a magnifying glass solving a crime in Gotham. And then right next to it on the rack, another Batman comic where he's on the moon, you know, fight, f- fighting Mongol. And, and it's just, it's the same character in different situations. And it's that flexible, but something isn't flexible in this film for people. And I guess I want to spot that because I, I think, I kind of think more than Batman Returns, this movie was a great joke, a great accomplishment. They're treating Batman like Superman here. Also, this movie has a weird anti-conservation uh, plot. It's, it's similar to um, similar to the EPA and Ghostbusters. Poison Ivy, who's all for the environment, is a villain because of her demands, is a villain because of her wants. I guess she is also an ecological terrorist, so maybe you have that. But but still, this movie does not have it warm for the environment. Still, you're making it very hard for me to side with you, Uma Thurman. Very hard to side with you. 
as you talk to yourself a lot. See, this part doesn't work, but I feel like so much in the movie does because it's doing what I think Batman Returns does. It's upending the movies and the expectation of the movies. In a way, it's giving you what you want. Bigger movie, big movie stars, big sequences, but it's not working for you because, I don't know, there's a twist in this. Right? Like even this right now, which is supposed to be an emotional scene. It's Mr. Freeze watching home movies of he and his dying wife. And he gets interrupted by one of his goons. He freezes him with a cartoon sound effect and then says this line I hate when people talk during the movie. It's commenting on where you are, the theater. It's making a joke in a way. You're supposed to applaud that, but it's also kind of like in the middle of this movie, it's commenting on you, and it's giving us this. Arnold Schwarzenegger is not a comedian. At this point of his career, he was still a tough-looking force of nature, and yet you have this comical, not Shakespearean, but comical take as he rips this frozen newspaper out of his, I'm sure to die henchman of hypothermia, it's just the tone, it's not all over the place. Well, again, movie, you keep proving me wrong because we're going into a ridiculous sequence now. These Congo drums mean there's a gorilla suit coming up in just a little bit. But yeah, here's a look at this neon dance sequence. This stuff I actually, I don't want to say love because I'm trying to figure out if this is also offensive, but look at the fucking colors here. Look at this fantastic look. I mean, I would love more of this in movies. We get it a little bit. I just saw Black Panther, and then, you know they're in a casino with a uh, performance number going on. You got it in the Luke Cage TV show. You got like clubs with singing every episode. This is James Bond. Like Black Panther was very James Bondian. This is sort of you know here's the exotic locale of Gotham. But oh, those nipples are distracting. I'm talking about Batman and Robin, not the models next to. Batman and Robin. Ladies and gentlemen, Pat Hingle. Everyone loved his Commissioner Gordon performance. You're probably asking yourself as you watch this, wait, which one's Pat Hingle? He's the one holding uh, the necklace there. He's Commissioner Gordon. You know, the Commissioner Gordon. You know, the wonderful father figure to a young Bruce. You know, in some of the comics, the, 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 the central tough but good cop on the TV show Gotham or the wonderfully voiced and animated uh, animated series version or this one, which is just chubby cop in a cop suit, which is not what I think of with Commissioner Gordon. I guess that's how he was on uh, on the 60s show. You know what? I'm, maybe I'm trying... Here's some weird pink gorillas. This guy really thinks he's acting. This rich man with a cigar. But, um... I mean, look, I'm watching this now knowing what's happening but also wondering what the fuck is happening. And that's great, right? I kind of think it is. I kind of think it's pretty great. It's just, it's not working, and it's so bizarre that it's giving you this. I, If this movie wasn't Batman, I think that's what it is, by the way. If this movie was some lesser-known character or made-up character, I think... It, and maybe it would have a little less money. It would have this, I think, wonderful cult status like the Apple has or Xanadu has. You know, it's 
It's Charles Schumacher is making a wonderfully camp cartoon. She might as well be Jessica Rabbit, and everyone here in the audience might as well be animated wolves uh, wooing as they thump their legs in the back and their hats spin around. Also, I don't know what this stupid song is. It's weird. But she's hypnotizing them with some weird, flowing, sensual powder. It doesn't make sense. I don't... Uh, Poison Ivy, maybe... That's close to the costume in the comic at the time. Close to the costume in the cartoon, at least. It's weird to reveal her now, because you've already revealed her, but that's what they're doing. I don't know. I, I'm watching this thing. This could be a midnight Rocky Horror picture show. This could be the Apple and Xanadu, like I already mentioned. This could be the kind of thing that you would dress up as, I'm going to go as weed gal. I'm going to go as, 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 you know, cold fella. You know, if they weren't the DC characters, this wasn't, it's just the expectation of this Batman movie is that it had to be a big spectacle. Camp movies are important and wonderful, and I love them. And you don't set out to make one. I'm not saying you set out to be like, you're going to snakes on a planet, where it's like, we're making the camp movie of the year. You don't get to do that. A movie becomes that. And this movie, here's where we're unfair as an audience. We don't allow this movie to do that. It's funny, this is very similar to the Pulp Fiction scene where she says her name on the on the dance floor. But we as an audience won't allow this movie to be fun for us. To be campy fun for us. Because of him. Because of he's got a cowl. Because it's Batman. I know I'm I was on the way to say Batman's malleable, but this this why won't we let this movie just be wonderfully crappy? Because it really is. Batman Forever is borderline. It's again, it's a, they're well made. It's just not what I want from a Batman movie. This is definitely not what I want from a Batman movie, but I can get past that and watch this the same way I watched the movies like I was referring to a minute ago, the uh, Pink Flamingos, you know, something something horny and horrible. Maybe time has allowed that. This movie is 21 years old. So it's. I don't find it hard to remember when this was coming out. I, I remember the spectacle that it was at the theaters. These movies always were. But, you know, when something exists for a while and it's getting... Re- Boy, this guy is acting the shit out of that cigar, as is the woman behind who couldn't quite believe the amount of money he was betting. Um, but no, I mean, I think 21 years... That's a pretty funny line. This This scene is ridiculous. Here comes his credit card. Again, with cartoon sound effects. Joel Schumacher. What the fuck? What the fuck wonderful thing are you doing here? With this comically ridiculous film. Here comes Mr. Freeze's ice sculpture car. Attacking people with a freeze ray. That Again, these people should be dead <laughs> when you're exposed to that sub-whatever temperature. Sub-zero temperature, I guess. But I, I assume they're all rescued somehow. I think they even say it. But um, yeah, this is silly, and it should be allowed to be silly. I mean, here's a choreographed fight scene, which is really just—it's just like Cirque du Soleil, maybe like a boring Cirque du Soleil. 
maybe it's, you know, like this would be the Batman, you know, like when you go, when you take a kid to see, you know, Batman live and it's this kind of like spectacle from a distance. It's all choreographed with the soundtrack. That's what this is, but we, we just paid wherever we paid to see it. There's some more weird, there's so many cartoon sounds. You're not going to hit, you know, you get the Wilhelm scream in Star Wars, but you don't get a whoosh, or I can't do it. God, what was I trying to do there? A slide whistle sound every time somebody falls. The physics of that swing didn't make sense. And here are the characters meeting. Mr. Freeze and Poison Ivy. Yeah, again, not great, but I can just see this playing midnight and people shouting their own responses to it. But for some reason, what? Is Batman sacred? Is that maybe it? I don't know. I don't know if it still is. Maybe people just don't like this. Maybe it's just bad. But how do you not... How would a drag queen not enjoy Poison Ivy? I mean, she's basically doing Divine here. She basically looks like that picture of Divine you always see from... I think it's from Pink Flamingos. (sighs) guess I'm having a hard time saying something intellectual about this film. Good night, he says. And that's in a trailer. A lot of trailer moments there. So, yeah, maybe... um, Maybe the argument isn't to be made that this is a brilliant piece of commentary. And yet, I don't know. I... We, I think we do treat these characters a little too seriously. You know, I this is a comic book movie, and it, you know, which means you're adapting. There was a time, anyways, where you would have been adapting a kid's cartoon, so it should be childish. You know, it should it should be cartoony or comic booky. But I guess we were having a hard time at the time. And maybe it's because of these characters. Maybe it's because of how you cast these characters, you know? Like, and I know they're, the, the tone of these movies are dramatically different. I'm not mistaking myself for that. But The Dark Knight, you know, Keith Ledger as the Joker in The Dark Knight works so well because of, well, because of his performance. But I think on our end you know, why that performance can work is that we don't recognize Heath Ledger. I I didn't. He wasn't an actor that I followed a lot. We're not looking for Heath Ledger. So we let that character take over. Um, You know, casting Jack Nicholson in the 1989 Batman, it was considered a brilliant stroke of genius in 1989. But when you cast Jack Nicholson, the character you were getting in that movie was uh, Jack Nicholson. And that's interesting, but, you know, it, it was also at a time where superhero films barely had a leg to stand on. So having an actor named Jack Nicholson in your movie gave something uh, non-comic booky to look at. You know, it was still a cinematic movie, so it's still a trick. And, you know, he's still playing a character, and it's an enjoyable performance. But, you know, existing in the realm of a comic book movie... You know, you make a comic book movie, you can do that. Existing in the realm of a comic book, you can't. What does that mean? Well, I, I again, I, it goes back to this idea that when you're adapting a comic book, you know, a kid's thing, but when you make it into a movie, you're making a film that has to obey the language of film, the conventions and expectations of film. 
At least it did back then. So you could bend it and play with it a little bit to make it fit what a general wider audience would want. But to make it comic booky, to make it like the comic book, you'd be playing to a smaller audience. And this movie, I think, is trying to maybe do both. No, this movie is trying to do neither, I think. Because even here, you have Batman about to fight Mr. Freeze. It should have been a fight sequence. And he just somehow knocked him on the ground and posed with him. This movie's subverting every shit thing you expect. How? How can it not have a moment that's recognizable as either a comedy or a comic book movie? I mean, here's Robin referencing Batman Forever a little. With a little bit of arguing back and forth. But how does it do this? I, I'm, I'm kind of amazed that this movie got made. And I, this thing is, I could... I could be watching Batman Returns right now and I could have said that same sentence and a lot of the same stuff. But Batman Returns still works. And Batman Returns has its goofy, silly moments. It has that uh, Miss Gotham character who who is kind of this ditzy blonde character who dies, by the way, dies a horrible death. And it has like that circus gang with kind of its hokey circus abilities. And it has an army of penguins. It has all these incredibly cartoony things that somehow work under the guise of gothicness. So you have that for Batman. But this, I don't know what they're reaching for here. CD technology. Not CD technology. Alfred's not a CD fella. This scene, actually, you know what? Everything I just said, again, this movie, always proving me wrong. We have a scene here with Bruce Wayne and Alfred that is actually worth it. It's a character moment. You're you're seeing actual maturity in Bruce Wayne here, interacting with his father figure, adopted father figure of Alfred. They referenced the the murder, the Wayne's murders. They repeat the origin. This scene actually would have been a wonderful trailer scene. It, it this feels like a Batman moment. What's it doing in this movie? What's this heart to heart between Alfred and Bruce Wayne doing in this otherwise preposterous Batman film? And then we have this little weird shot of the tombstone just to remind you of Batman. That's what the hell? This doesn't make sense. I came to this thinking I was going to make sense of this movie, but this scene is throwing me out of whack. Because Jill Schumacher, you're giving us what a comic fan wants for Alfred's scene Batman and Alfred interacting. You're not supposed to give, I have just given that to us. This movie's supposed to be a joke, but you're not allowing it to be a joke. Oh my God. You know, I forgot that she was in this. It's Batgirl or it's um, Barbara. I don't think they ever call her Barbara Gordon. Again, they she could have been Pat Hingle's granddaughter. If you're forgetting who Pat Hingle is, he's the always memorable character of Commissioner Gordon, or as he looks in this movie, cop number two. But yeah, I mean, this. Look at what they're doing here. They're 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 building one movie after. She looks kind of gothy, actually, with her eyeliner. 
per poorly applied but cool looking eyeliner. You're enjoyable in this Alicia Silverstone. Again, I, I don't see you as Barbara Gordon, but that's because you're not Barbara Gordon. You're someone named Barbara. Arkham Asylum. That's familiar, right? That's a nice shot of the asylum. That's spooky. I wish we spent some time. Look at the geography of Arkham Asylum there. I wish we spent some time seeing that. I love the. I guess you kind of do here. I guess this is that weird extension there with the light coming in. I mean, this is this is the scene. I I'm surprised and disappointed that Tim Burton never got his hands on an Arkham Asylum scene. Like, can you imagine that? Can you imagine an Arkham Asylum scene from Tim Burton? That'd be that. That I would love to see. Not this one where nine eleven truther and whoever this other guy is bring him into uh into into Arkham. Which look again, Joel Schumacher does a good job with some of the gothicness. But I just, this could have been cool with Tim Burton. Tim Burton actually may have been able to make Mr. Freeze work a bit. Jesse Ventura, by the way, was the name of the 9-11 truth or that. I can't remember names today. It's a fucking pop filter. But that's it. inescapably his voice. So was he governor at this point? He was a Navy SEAL, black ops. Look how creepy that looks. He looks like one of the fantastic planet creatures right now crawling into his bed. I mean, this is disturbing. This is unsettling. This, again, is totally wrong for your movie. Or there's no tone in your movie, I think, is is kind of what we're getting to here. This movie is all over the place, but I think in a way that's well-planned. I think... I, I don't think it's accidentally a mess, I guess. I mean, I don't know. Hard to tell. Because why would why would someone make a mess on purpose? But in the script, did it have to say exterior Turkish bath? And then someone designing it said, make sure there's a lot of neon there. I mean, these are choices that are made. Oh, that's right, because these guys are in the first one. These neon... See, look at this. This is awesome, by the way. They, they look like He-Man characters. <laughs> Scareglow and a few others. You've got this neon gang that should have been in this movie more. These would have been, you know, if, if the villain... If any of the villains had been a little more endearing, you would have kept them around. But it looks great. That's what I'm saying. That's comic booky. That's flashy. That's what Marvel was hesitant to do for a few movies. Give characters a comic book look. I'm not, I know that is a famous, is that Don Dragon? I forget his name. That's a famous stuntman, but I can't remember. And here's the mistake the movie makes. They could have kept these guys around, build her a gang. I know it doesn't fit the plant theme just because they're green and neon, but this looks great. I mean, this is Joel Schumacher because he had this in the last one, so maybe it's repetitive, but this is a great looking sequence with some awful slide whistle sound effects. Why? Why are these menacing villains thrown out with the same sound that Scooby-Doo makes when he slips on a banana peel? There's a better metaphor out there than that, Tim. Scooby-Doo slips on but But look at, I mean, just look at the lights. Look at the paint. Look at the look of this set. You're probably not, by the way, because it's very hard to find a copy of Batman and Robin because nobody wants it, so they don't press them anymore. 
But this is just, this is awesome looking. And horrible sounding. Like I was saying earlier, maybe it's best to be talking over this. Uma Thurman's interpretation is not working. Also, was she taking a dump there? No, you're not taking a dump. Okay, you're planting something, which some would say is taking a dump. That's how seeds travel. This, and again, we, we, we know it enough from the comic, but does this make sense that she just has magical vines growing? If she can, go all the way. Was that Oogie Boogie? That's weird. I just, this is a lot of work. This scene is a lot of work, not just to sit through, but to make. It should be great. It is great. I, I, again, I do wish her voice was different, but, oh, poor, yeah, I wish I wasn't Bane. That's the thing. Maybe this movie script <laughs> could have been transplanted to unknown characters, different characters, maybe characters we expect this from. So El McPherson here is playing Bruce Wayne's girlfriend. And here's something. I know I'm, I'm, I'm jumping ahead here, but, you know, to show you that the tone of this movie isn't consistent. Originally, Poison Ivy was to kill her character. Bruce Wayne's love interest right here, El McPherson, was to be killed later in the movie by Poison Ivy to, 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 to cement her as a villainess, villain as a villain. I wonder, I'm wondering how the script read then. Maybe the script was a darker script. You know that the Mr. Freeze with, with Arnold Schwarzenegger there, they, they, they considered casting, and I think they even did preliminary uh, design work, uh, Patrick Stewart to play the role, which when you see him on the cartoon makes sense. They look, they're both bald is what that amounts to. But and I know he is now. Patrick Stewart is considered a, a comedian in a lot of ways, he, American Dad, and some sketches and stuff that he's done. But 1997, you know, he he was coming off of Star Trek. Next Generation had ended a few years before. Um, Shakespearean actor never quite broke into films in the 90s the way you might have thought. Eventually, he plays Professor X and he goes down that route. But not a comedian at that time, not thought of as a comedian. So I don't think they would have had him spouting all these puns. So what would, what, what, what would the, the, the Mr. Freeze have been, um, with, with Patrick Stewart? And if they were considering him, then maybe they were considering a different tone. And what would that tone have been? And when was the decision to do this movie? Like the strange hypnotic plant lady. When was that put together as a thought? I don't know. I don't know. Look, I um <clears throat> I think there is something with fandom. Deep um deep hardcore comic book collecting, action figure brandishing, superhero fandom that isn't necessarily translatable to like music or books or well, non-pulp characters and, 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 and storytelling. I think you experience these things on the page. This is pretty, by the way. I mean, I know it's weird you're seeing Clockwork Orange characters and punks. I like the look of this. But here's the thing. Why this movie's odd, why getting that is odd, is the Batman you think you know, or the Batman you do know as a fan, the Batman you experience, you know, that you know that you've read. Hello, 
Coolio, I think. That was Coolio. Anyways, the Batman you know is on the page. As a comic book fan, you know Batman from the page. You would know Batgirl from the page, from reading comic books. And since we read them as comic books, we um <clears throat> we lose any tolerance for challenging that established world. You know, reading a comic book is insular. Back in the 90s, collecting comics was pretty insular. I mean, you had Wizard Magazine. God, I, I miss Wizard Magazine. And you had your conventions, but you weren't necessarily getting a sense of how other parts of the world or, or society viewed, experienced, or, or interacted with these characters. I mean, plenty of people know Batgirl without ever having read a comic. People know Batman. And, and you know what? That's, that's groundbreaking, that a drawing of a character can reach more than its audience. But what that means is you don't just have comic book writers and comic book artists dealing with them, you know, dealing with Batman, working with Batman and, and interpreting him or, or Robin or Batgirl. You know, different hands guided by what different eyes with different intentions that guide stuff like this, like this movie, like this motorcycle sequence of this movie. And I know the argument is valid that this film, the sequence, these characters were also made to sell toys. I mean, the behind-the-scenes interviews tell us that. Looking at it right now kind of tells us that a little bit, um, you know. But at the same time, that's not the sole sum of the film's parts. And I can't speak for the actors, any of the actors, actually, because of that aforementioned fandom thing. See, I actually, I don't like these interpretations. I don't like Robin in the scene. I don't like Batgirl in the scene. I don't like them as those characters. So I don't want to accept that these are the characters, but um, Jill Schumacher, you know, the, the director who's putting this together and, and, and the set designers who are building the looks of this and special effect technicians and whoever was just on those bikes and some of the effects work, they are giving us art. You know, they're still giving us something. This film wasn't a sit-in-your-chair-and-point-a-finger production. I mean, look at what's going on right now. There is a lot of artistic work on hand in this film. The colors, the angles, the, the motion. It's just not connected to the characters, you know, or to the storytelling, which is counterproductive to a narrative. I, I get it, but, you know, looking back at 89's Batman... Or 92's Batman, neither of which were as exciting as this pretty fast-paced sequence now. Um, looking at those two movies, there is no story in either of those movies. I mean, I think Batman Forever, the one that came out before this, probably had the most coherent plot um, in terms of character arcs and character interactions. But the you know those two Tim Burton ones, they would be floundering messes, you know, if it wasn't for... Well, what's missing from this one? If it wasn't for the Danny Elfman score, you know, or Anton First's production designs, or Bob, you know, was it Bob Ringwood's costuming, Tim Burton's gothic abstract imagery? I mean, those are all the things I gravitate to, and they they were a visual spectacle, you know, not 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 a story, you know, the, 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 but the visuals of those movies remain in the consciousness, you know, and we forget that. To look at either of the first two Batman movies, you know, for story, you know, they, they're a mess of plotting and storytelling and character interaction. And they're, they're also inconsistent with the characterization in the comics. But for some reason, we took it, you know, or I took it. And in a way, I think taking that twice was probably enough. 
Well, I mean, I think that now, you know, in this calm moment of them walking in a garage full of bikes. But back then, you know, back when this movie would have been on the screen, when I would have been watching Alicia Silverstone as Batgirl on the screen, I think I wanted more Michael Keaton. You know, I wanted him, not George Clooney. And I wanted more Tim Burton, not Joel Schumacher. But but these movies weren't built, you know, for the shared continuity that I think uh, – I think that I expect from movie sequels now, you know, the Batman films were, you know, in the nineties anyways, were, were more James Bond, I think, not that I know James Bond, but they were more James Bond in that you don't really have to adhere to what transfi- uh, transpired before, transpired, <laughs> transpired is the word I'm trying to say, you know, you, you could use the template of the characters, you know, Batgirl's uh, 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 late teens, early 20 something, you know, and Robin, who he is, you know, and, and you can use those templates you know, but you surround it by the zeitgeist of the moment, you know, bikes, I guess, in the extremity of the 90s. And, and you build a spectacle around that. And this movie, not right now, as we see a very comfortably pantsed George Clooney speaking, but most of this movie is pure spectacle. You know, while also, I think, kind of an interesting reprimand to the gothic seriousness of the Tim Burton films. I mean, here's a friend. That was a friendly Bruce Wayne. Here we're back in Arkham, which I guess looks a little bit like we kind of expect, you know, from the Tim Burton movies. But outside of some of those visuals, because it, you know, outlandish gothic sets and designs, this couldn't be a more opposite movie. You know, kind of embracing this garishness of a, of, of the of the whole comic book movie endeavor. It's kind of like, you know, the controversy, controversy, excuse me, surrounding The Last Jedi. And I, I know we're not talking about Star Wars. I'm sorry to bring in Star Wars, but, um, and, and you're probably tired of hearing about it, you know, depending on when you listen to this, maybe it's been months. Um, and that's a little different, I think, you know. Um, but The Last Jedi, you know, as a movie, you know, it, it as a Star Wars movie, it feels different than what uh, what predated it. You know, but still, it's on the big screen. It's tagged by the title Star Wars, you know, and, and in the case of this movie, it was tagged by the title Batman. So, watching it, sitting in the audience and watching something that says Star Wars or says Batman, we have to, um, we have to be entertained, right? Don't we have to like it? You know, because otherwise, it fails. The movie would fail because we. I don't know. We, as fans of this material, I guess, let's talk Batman. As fans of Batman, we're insulated from the rest of the world because of our pure comic book fandom. You know, we like how they are in the book, so we don't really like variety or, uh, that's hot, or uh, experimentation. You know, the, the, the reason the Marvel Cinematic Universe, I think, has been such an interesting, and there's, there's Joker's jacket, um, why it's been, I think, interesting, you know, why I, I, I think Marvel has done well, you know, as an experiment, as this multi-large universe comic book experiment, and, and why you probably can't replicate it through the other shared universes, you know, lies on fandom's need for continuity. Lies in what I'm saying makes this difficult, that fans want what's in the book, and the Marvel Cinematic Universe movies kind of give you that, you know, at a consistent level and, and throughout all the comic books. So the waiver from that probably seems frustrating. What is happening here? Jesus, Bane. But the waiver from that seems frustrating. Seems like a, 
a misstep because this movie we're watching, for example, this version of Mr. Freeze, Poison Ivy, whatever, it's not the story we, as Batman fans, would tell. And that's where this weird, I don't know, this weird fan ownership comes in. I don't think fans like being surprised. I don't think fans like to be challenged. You know, I, I, I don't think fans like a story that doesn't follow the story that they themselves would write. I know I should be saying we here. I guess I'm doing a weird pedestal thing by saying they, but we want the stories that we would have told. So these sorts of things, like this movie, this strange breakout from, from Arkham, it's not made for us, you know? It's made for and by someone with a curiosity towards the medium and its appeal, but also, I mean, this particular one, it's made by someone who's willing to shatter the contrivances, sort of dissect, you know, and explore it like, I don't know, this movie's like a parody or, or, or you know, like, like satire. I, in a way, that what they're doing with Batman and the, and the mythos of Batman and these characters is actually like true, real pop art. You know, Joel Schumacher is out Warholing Andy Warhol when it comes to comic books with this movie. And I don't know, maybe that's why it's considered garbage. Get your, uh, get your diamonds and meatloaf. Is that what you said? Huh? Yeah, I, just, I, just, I do. I keep thinking of The Last Jedi, not the totally jump topics here. I should be focusing on the movie, I guess. It's questionable if I can't focus on the movie, but The Last Jedi wasn't content with continuing the Star Wars saga, you know, as it had been for, what, 40 years. I mean, over the original three films, um, the prequels, you know, there's comic books, there's too many novels. And then it's just anything you've ever would have done with any of those action figures, you know, whatever adventures you created for them. You know, and all of that, I guess, conceivably would eventually reach critical mass. You know, it's just too much to try to make sense of. But for some reason, no one wants to reboot Star Wars. I mean, I'm thankful that it didn't reboot Star Wars. But, you know, what they did, I guess, was find a way to sort of maybe sever, you know, some of these strings of ongoing storylines and make it accessible to sort of a new, a new audience and a different audience. You know, they had the movie, you know, they had this movie and in it, they, they tell longtime fans that their story, their star Wars story was over, you know, not the saga, not the rebellion, not maybe the the ongoing narrative, but their version of how that story's t- told. You know, it, it needed to adapt, it needed to be altered, and it needed to move on. And so it did. And you know, all this whining about it, and how could they do this? Whatever, you know, it's like we as and I liked the Last Jedi. Actually, I loved it, but you know, even if I didn't, we still have the same trilogy, you know, the original trilogy, or six films if you count the prequels, or just two films if you want to ignore Re- Return of the Jedi, or whatever your measurement of absolute Star Wars is, you still have those on VHS, and, and you know, it doesn't, it doesn't go away, it just, it just doesn't keep getting made. 
Well, we're talking those guys. We're talking Batman here and that strange door of frozen food. So let's talk Batman here. Maybe not so much that strange door of frozen food. This should be a deep part of the plot. That's kind of creepy. But uh, look, as a comic book fan, I would like this scene. It's like they've got that weird, it's, it's Mr. Freeze's wife and suspended animation. You know, but so that that rings something. You know, it rings something true with the comic. So, you know, as a, as a comic book fan, that scene should work. But let's go a little smaller there, actually. Let's say as a movie fan of Batman, maybe that's not smaller, but it's different. Less to work with because you just got the three movies that precede this. As a movie fan of Batman, I had the first, you know, Tim two Tim Burton ones. Nothing says I keep getting Tim Burton ones. You know, I have them already. And you know what? If Tim Burton did keep making Batman movie after Batman movie after Batman movie, eventually I probably would tire of one of them. And suddenly, if that happened, I would find a problem with Tim Burton Jesus, it keeps coming back to the Star Wars. <laughs> yeah, I mean, just because I'm thinking, you know, like the prequels. To compare this movie to the prequels. The, the prequels made a lot of people think George Lucas was a crackpot. That he was mad. That he, that he was a bad filmmaker. But, I mean, come on. After a while, that argument, come on. Look at those hours and hours of your childhood spent watching the original Star Wars. George Lucas made that. Everyone involved made that. But George Lucas was one of them. And... That doesn't change with age. And and it wasn't. But even if that was just a one-time accomplishment, you know, making Star Wars, that's that's not a fluke. He made the most influential two hours of your childhood. That's immense. So what if the follow-up 20 years later doesn't hold up? I mean, of course that's depressing, but so what? He's trying something different, and it didn't work for you. I've changed my hairstyle. I've changed my job. I've changed relationships because something was done or was over, was was no longer happening or working, or whatever. Again, every time I'm making these statements, if I stop for a minute and look at the movie, it does look kind of silly. I mean, Batman just fell on a couple bags of ice cream contents. There's a snowman. I don't know. This is... Here we're seeing Bane, and I have to say, when I saw this, I was thinking Bane would break Batman's back. I thought this movie was going to incapacitate Batman. It's kind of set up that way. You've got Robin, you got Batgirl. Couldn't all of they do the final battle in the final scene while Batman's waylaid? Wouldn't that have been a dramatic route to go? I think so, but that's because I've read the comics. I think so because I know Bane. This is Bane fighting Robin. Is he going to break Robin's back? No. It's a appearance. Well, okay, that line was kind of spot on about the action figure. This movie is aware of what it's doing. That's the thing. This movie knows what it's doing. It knows what preceded it, and it knows that it's important to change. You know? Whether or not that's actual growth. But, um, I don't know. It's, it's just because you have Batman, you know? And in art, you have Batman, which is the strange phenomena of a reoccurring character. Trying to talk about Batman, not Star Wars here. Um, I know I'm a little all over the place. Sorry. I, I, just, I think there was crack in this eight ball. 
But when you have a decades-old character such as Batman, you know, constantly reoccurring in all mediums, you can't just keep draping him in the same cape and cowl. Well, I mean, you can, but we would have just seen that, you know, and characters don't necessarily change that much in, in, in comic books. I mean, they only physically age unless it aids the story. Certain aspects of the development always have to get reset, you know, while other traits, you know, they do change and grow. And the thing is, we do remember those changes. Robin maturing into Nightwing was a big deal, and we remember it. Rogue joining the X-Men for a character that was introduced as a villain, we remember this. You know, these things matter because we care about these characters within this encapsulated continuity, all of its editorial bumps, you know, to make the timeline work. So we have that. But this, neon colored as a movie, this is kind of why comic fans don't want other people reading their books. Because it allows for something like this. It allows for other interpretations, this weird romantic jealousy fight, you know, or, or whatever it is this plot's going to be. And this is, that's silly. And these interpretations risk, you know, making the characters look like or sound like, you know, look and sound like they do in this film. And that, that's frightening. And that's frustrating because if someone can make these characters look and sound like this. And if this has the DC endorsed title of Batman and Robin emblazoned on it, and it's not just some cheap Rob Liefeld knockoff without feet, then our character, our beloved Batman or Robin, is this. It's capable of being this, and this is utterly ridiculous. You know, this actually right here, Poison Ivy just killed Mr. Freege's wife. That's harsh, and that's out of place right now. He just kicked, she just kicked the uh, core that would have kept her going, called her frigid, killed her to uh, probably motivate Mr. Freeze further. But that's a little out of character here. That's grim, that's dark. That's maybe the Batman we, as fans, thought we wanted. And it does seem out of place here because within the movie, it's hard to have jarring conceits fighting each other. Nice glasses. Jesus. See, this is the thing. This looks silly. It's melodramatic. These actors are being melodramatic. And if we've grown up on the comics... And we're coming to this movie that's interpreting these characters this way. We as a reader, you know, as a fan, as someone who sees this as Mr. Freeze and Poison Ivy Batman, we have to acknowledge something we love and are invested in this, this much, you know, this deeply in our life is also utterly ridiculous. And Mr. Freeze... Poison Ivy, Bane, Batman, comic books, Star Wars. They are totally ridiculous. I mean, there is a reason that as we age, something like this hits us weird. This movie makes us think that we want a gritty adult take on these things from childhood because these things were made for childhood, and we don't want to acknowledge we could ever have enjoyed something as childish as Super Friends, you know, or the original He-Man cartoons. We, we, we want the feeling of the memory, but it's like we want to 
forget the visuals of the memory, you know, or the story. We don't want to accept the stupid aspects that made us like it as a, as, as a kid. And that's our doing, you know. At the end of the day, Star Wars needs to be hokey and for kids, you know. Or else it's, it's something else. And it can be something else. But, but, but that thing, even that thing, that's not Star Wars. It's something else. But the name Star Wars is on it, so I guess it can be Star Wars. And since that might be something we enjoy, then we are fine with it being Star Wars. And, and you know, Batman and the rest of these characters, they're, they're the same way. You know, prior to knowing who Poison Ivy was, but you know, I knew Mr. Freeze, I knew Batman, I knew Robin. These were characters that I loved as a kid because they were in Super Friends. You know, we love Batman because he was in Super Friends. Unless you're the listener who needs to distinguish themselves by pretending you are reading The Killing Joke at age six. You know, but Batman is a character that is incredibly flexible like that. He started as a pulpy crime fighter in 1938, you know, a character I would have no interest in today. His stories and portrayals in those first few detective issues are not, they're not what I want from a Batman story. You know, then more villains were introduced. Then Robin was introduced and it became the Adam West show. But, you know, and then in the 70s, he became a blue and gray costumed member of uh, the Super Friends, not the Justice League, the Super Friends. And, and that's, that's where I first encountered him. You know, so at age three, with my Super Friends pillowcase featuring Batman alongside all sorts of other DC characters and a dog with a cape on its back, you know, I fell in love with Batman. But that Batman called people chum. You know, that Batman worked in the daylight and had murdered parents, but they weren't referenced until well into the series' 10-year run, you know? But Batman's parents were murdered, and the Batman I was watching, his parents were murdered, so that sort of story works too. And that character is capable of going down some dark paths, you know, like the previously mentioned Killing Joke comic. But who I was at three could not have enjoyed Batman and the Killing Joke. I, I would have recognized his costume, but I, I, would, I, I wouldn't have related to the story. So what? You know, I was three. I got what I wanted out of Super Friends, and something like the Killing Joke could still be on the shelf. And I, and I would not have wanted to deny my three-year-old self the chance to wear a plastic Adam West-like Batman Halloween mask just because Batman couldn't be for kids. He can, and he was, in a cartoon that older fans of the Grimmer Batman comics didn't watch. You know, and a three-year-old doesn't have sole ownership over a character, but nor does the adult who pays for the book. Batman, Batgirl, Alfred, you know, these characters, they can be all of these things, and we can pick and choose the one we'll look at. Truthfully... Boy, he looks sick without his glasses, doesn't he? Sorry, if I should be watching the movie. I'm rambling here. I just, you know, I'm just thinking about how, like, when I got older, you know, because Batman's a good example of this. As I got older, you know, I was able to look into my brother's extensive, I have an older brother, and he had an extensive comic book collection. Um, and, and within that collection, he had Batman issues, you know, and I saw things like Batman Year One, and I saw things like, uh, like The Dark Knight Returns, and I didn't know what to make of them yet. 
it wasn't until 1989 when the, when the grim Batman 89 hit the screen that I was ready to experience a dark night. But, but, but that's, that's, that's fine. You know, that's fine. I'm glad that these other interpretations exist. I can always pick, choose, and find my preferred version of Batman, which for me is actually the first two seasons of the animated series. It's not these movies. It's not the comics. But these movies can happen. And I can or cannot care about them. But, you know, I'm doing a podcast here. Of course I care. I'm just trying to create some drama and talking while, I guess, choosing not to really watch the film here. You know, I do care. And I do mock this film. That's the thing. In 1997, and the two decades that followed, like this scene with, that's Commissioner Gordon, (laughs) getting magic dust blown on him. I derided this film, you know, because it wasn't the Batman I wanted. And it's a lot more affordable to both print and read a comic book um, than it is to produce or attend a film. So the sheer financial spectacle of this film is probably why I felt it deserved so much derision. I don't want to see Pat Hingle smile. Sorry, Pat Hingle. I mean, it's, it's, it's corny. And, 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 you know, I, I, so was the Adam West show. This is a lot like, you know, he looks like the Adam West Commissioner Gordon. So this is a lot like the Adam West show. And I honestly, and I think a lot of people, you need to remember this, if it's the case with you. For me, I wasn't a fan of the Adam West show for a long time. So this, this particular movie, Batman and Robin, you know, when it hit, wasn't for me. I think it was more for people who saw comics as sort of, childish, you know, silly and capable of producing this film's phenomenal pun count, but um, I don't know, maybe this one was meant to appeal to me or to the part of me who liked cartoon adventures, maybe of the Super Friends, you know, maybe this is more for people who grew up with Batman and the Super Friends, not even people who just a few years later I had discovered the animated adventures of Bruce Timm's Batman, you know. But also, it's just that each film in this Batman film saga, it, they get progressively larger in size in terms of budget, you know, and scope and just character count. This this franchise was more of a reflection of filmmaking excess, I think, than any comic book sensibility. So maybe, maybe what Joel Schumacher did with this and is doing with this is that he made everything. Way to go, Bane. Way to lift that. It's a perfect example. Maybe he made everything larger in this film than previously and beyond you know just to make it beyond the point of rational (laughs) i mean let's think back if you can if you were watching this think back to that suit up sequence at the very beginning that you know when batman and robin are getting dressed you know it's an overly done loudly uh sound affected hero suiting up scene that you know and we've seen this we've seen it numerous times before we've seen it numerous times since but the scene it's going on it's even happened in the previous batman movies i keep thinking to batman 89 when batman get dresses but this one this particular one in jill schumacher's film is accented by (sighs) pronounced nipples and prominent ass and i think we're supposed to stumble over that as an audience i think we're actually supposed to be taken out of the movie I mean, I think the opening of this film, when they're getting dressed, is an honest signpost from the director that it is okay to be thrown by this. 
to be totally thrown and confused and perplexed by this Batman film. And, and I think I missed that cue for 20 years because huh, these comic books were so sacred to me. You know, I didn't want to have to consider, even for a cinematic second, that comic books could also be dumb. That they could be dumb. That they could be dumb. And sometimes comic books are dumb. A lot of my most favorite comic books are dumb. Again, this seems out of place. It's a, it's a touching moment between Bruce and Alfred that makes me think if you were following a film straight through with a character arc, this would make sense. But because each of these Batman films basically reboots the previous one, we're not allowed to care about them. And I think Joel Schumacher, I don't know why he's putting the scene in here, because honestly, I don't think he wants us to care that. What are you? No, that's nice, Bruce. That is actually sweet. And I don't think Joel Schumacher wants us to really feel this scene. Because Or this is bad filmmaking. If it is, the best scenes in this movie are bad filmmaking because they're out of touch with the rest. Because so much of this movie, so much of what Joel Schumacher is doing in this movie is unveiling you know, the pulpy and ridiculous roots of this too sacred of a cape and cowl character. And actually, simultaneously... He was also dealing with the mechanics of a mega-budgeted movie and its marketing campaign. Campaign? Campaign? No, it's campaign. But that's the thing. I mean, he was being told to make things bigger, faster, and to sell more toys. And, you know, of course he did. But also, he did this strange, counterintuitive, blatant undressing of that concept, you know, by making this movie. You know, I mean, I feel like this film is the one instance I can think of with all of its budget and all the history of this character behind it. This movie was the one time I can think of someone setting out to make a quote unquote bad movie and succeeding, you know, not ham fisting the idea that look how little craft and understanding we have, you know, aren't we on MST 3000? No, I, I think because Joel Schumacher's film is a complicated film. This is a spectacle where almost every shot is actually worthy of study because every shot is at once exactly how you piecemeal a film like this together while also being a Simpson level parody of big budget spectacle, you know? His, I, I, you know, and I, I feel like, huh, I, just, I feel, I mean, here we are, Batman and Robin arguing. I, I, I feel like that this is the one thing, maybe the one misstep that Joel Schumacher took, I guess. You know, the fact that he used such a recognizable and beloved figure as Batman, as maybe Robin Batgirl, somehow, you know, at that moment, 1997, with the universe in love with its own, you know, Batman merchandise, merchandise. <laughs> no one watching this film wanted to think that, even for a second, that this beloved, grim character, you know, why they feel they got comic books as art via Batman, you know, why this dark archetype was also just a silly comic book character. That it's 
crazy that that would I mean, this man getting frozen. This is silly. He would be dead. She would be sc- more scared than she actually is. Well, she's frozen now, so she doesn't have a choice. But I don't know. I I, I think that people. I don't think it's that they didn't get that Batman was silly, as Bane puts these bombs down by saying bomb. I don't think that they they're not getting this. I think that's that no one wants to admit that. You know, no one in the theater who was a comic book fan wanted to admit that Batman can be pretty dumb. <laughs> you know, in a good way, but, you know, I mean, having all your tools reflect your bat theme, you know, and having an outlandish rocket of a car or, or Jesus, making your coworkers dress up, you know, living in your cave bunker that's directed or decorated to look like a cave, you know, not just... I don't know, not even just using a telephone to call you when, you when you're needed, but using this extensive spotlight that you have to be near a window to see. These are dumb, silly, and wonderfully comic book elements that we need to identify this character with. A Batman without the Batmobile, a Batman without the Bat Signal, a Batman without the Batcave wouldn't be Batman. And I love the fact that in these movies we're getting to see this, you know? But it is silly. My fandom love for it can't balance out that it's also silly. It, 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 it's sort of like, sort of like the first two movies here, the first Batman movies. Like that's that's how Batman sees himself, you know? Because at least how I watch him, you know, he's menacing in the shadows. It's a man of few words, but you know, at the end of the day, if to take his origin story from the comics, he's a big, you know, Bruce Wayne's a big Zorro geek or. Gray Ghost Geek, I guess, defending on the rights issues. You know, he's cosplaying, the character of Bruce Wayne is cosplaying what he envisions justice to be. And, and, and the vision that he chose is a bat. We don't really think of bats as justice or vengeance or anything other than the word rodents. You know, a rodent is a, yeah, there's a shot of Alicia Silverstone's ass and her boobs. It seems more exploitative here, not so much a comment there. That's that's sexist of me, saying that that's sexist of the movie, probably, because they're treating her the same way they treated the other characters. Hmm. It's outlandish fashion, Robin's costume, Batman's costume. You know, and I love these concepts, you know, I, I but... It needs the reality of these movies or the comics to work. Like the first two movies, it's dark and grim. And these second two movies, it's almost as if this is how the rest of reality would see these costumes. You know, that it is ridiculous that you have these themed outfits. This is day-glow stupidity. Now, I'm not saying this is exactly what Jill Schumacher intended, but somehow this movie prepped and primed me or something to think about it. I don't know. I I I think he is making us think a bit of this. And I and I'm not saying that this movie is actually the best examination of comic book tropes, you know, that the 90s had to even the 90s had to offer. You know, I think the animated cartoon The Tick, we did an episode on The Tick a while back, do you know The Tick? Um that was a good sort of dissection of uh of comic books. But, you know, it was also a good parody of the concept just of Saturday morning cartoons, you know, which is what it was. The Tick as a TV show 
as an animated TV show, was commenting on its medium by being part of the medium. And so for Batman and Robin to be maybe doing the same thing, you know, 1997, there just weren't other comic book movies. I, I know I already said that, but, but it's true. You know, I feel the same way about 1999's um, Mystery Men with Janine Garofalo and Ben Stiller. You know, when these movies hit as comedies, both based on comic books and both as comedies, Batman and Robin is a comedy, you know, we didn't have the cinematic language yet to talk about a comic book movie genre because we we didn't have enough comic book movies to to warn a genre. You know, now, sure, now, because we're drowning in too many X-Men and development films, you know, we would, we, we, I think we would get a lot more of this film now. You know, especially following what a lot of people call the disaster of last year's Justice League. I mean, wouldn't now, in this age of Batman v Superman and what, Jesse Eisenberg and Jared Leto be the perfect time to unleash a look at the self-important and self-deluded direction these comic book movies take themselves? Wouldn't it be great to remind the people who, who think we want to see Batman brandishing an assault rifle that this is what he looks like in the daylight and that it's silly? I actually do like that costume. I have to say, it's, it's the most non-Poison Ivy costume in the movie, but I like this red outfit she has. I don't know how I feel about this fight sequence, but you know, her costume's cool. It's colors, but she's a different character. That's the thing. Make her a different character. Maybe don't make her poison Ivy. I don't know. Oh, I don't know. I don't know. I, I, I go back and forth right now. I'm thinking of, is, is this doing what I think it's doing? Because, you know, either way, this film, you know, Batman and Robin, you know, for it to exist, you know, whenever it would exist, I think it just worked against being released in 1997. I think the fact of when it came out, it just didn't work, you know, it was part of an ever-topping film franchise. And I don't know, I mean, audiences probably wanted a slightly louder version of The Dark Knight they had just had. But this film, to them, probably exaggerated all the wrong traits. So, I don't know, it didn't fit the one Batman franchise we had going. I just, I know I keep saying this, but I feel like it, this would have worked with a different character. Without that comparison to the previous Batman films has its basis. You know, without all that, you know, maybe we would make something different of this film. Maybe we'd be allowing ourselves to enjoy the complexity of its comedy. But then, if it wasn't a Batman film at this point in 1997, what would it be mocking? You know, what would it be examining in this exaggerated style without, without the three preceding and vastly different Batman films? I mean, this movie, in a way, works retroactively. You know, maybe as commentary on some current trends in in, 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 in in popular culture, popular cinema. But unless Joel Schumacher is a time traveler, which I I, I don't think. But you know, it, it was there's a little in here that maybe was I don't know. This film is more of an attack on big budget film excess, you know, more so than the comic book tropes. And I think I 
maybe I'm stumbling here because I'm, I'm working really hard to make it illuminate that, to make it something different. But so what? You know, I think at the time it, it didn't have the things to mock to make it a worthwhile mockery, but now it does. And 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 maybe that's maybe that's where it finally becomes art. You know, maybe now. Not uh not then. But maybe what this is is an argument towards something. Maybe something can become art over time. Sorry, I just bumped my knee into the table if you heard that. You know, but maybe thanks to society and thanks to the audience that has come since the film, maybe Batman and Robin works better now because we have had so many cinematic Batman, you know, all with their fair share of, 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 of actual faults. But is, is it possible? I mean, is that possible that with 20 years of film to draw on, the, 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 a viewing audience can turn a piece of uh, a formerly crap celluloid into a socially relevant piece of art? I, I, I mean, is that possible? I mean, maybe. And, and, and if so, I, I think that's what this, the whole issue I keep saying I have with fandom amounts to. You know, watching this movie. Well, not watching this part, because this part is just a little too much flash and missiles for me. But, you know, as fans, as fans of anything, you know, as we get older, as experience occurs around us, you know, as we hold on to something from the the, the, the past, some piece of uh, nostalgia, childhood nostalgia, you know, that that thing, that piece, that nostalgia takes on a a, a greater meaning, you know, or... I guess a different meaning, you know, at least than, than its initial uh, conception, you know? So can we as fans of something, you know, fans of something from childhood make something art, you know, make something that was only entertainment into our past into something bigger. I mean, are we that involved in the creative narrative of, of Batman or Princess Leia, you know, or Optimus Prime? You know, are, I don't know, like, are, are we making modern myths, like the archetypes of the Greeks and the Romans and the, the Sumerians? Huh. I mean, that, this is sort of blowing my mind right now because I feel like I'm getting something for the first time here. It still starts with real artists and screenwriters, comic artists, toy sculptors, and, and puppeteers. You know, they're all real artists. But the work they make... This art they make, you know, it's 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 malleable, it's posable, it's Plato in the hands of popular culture. That's that's probably why it's popular. It exists as a sort of I don't know what you call it, like a like a filter, maybe, or maybe more like a, a broadcast, like a like a radio. I don't know of our own internal thoughts, of our feelings, of our our our, our, our beliefs. <sighs> You know, not a blank slate. Art's not a blank slate, but maybe it's something that still needs an interaction to be something. And to return to it, you know, to come back to something from like childhood or from our past, our interaction is going to be different. And and it is going to be a different piece of work by that effect. You know, I, I think art can change. 
In fact, something maybe can even become art long after it's first released into the world. Not by the artist's intention, but just by just by situation, timing, viewers. I don't know. It, you know, it's it's not there isn't a narrative to it. It's not set in now, present, future. It's 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 a weird cylindrical look at something because yeah, we have to sort of bend our rules of perception to make this movie artistic. And yet it is. Again, not right there. Not Robin catching Batgirl, maybe, but a lot of this is a well-intentioned... I think that's a shot from Batman Forever. I think those rocks are taken from Batman Forever, but I think a lot of this is a well-structured piece of visual something. I won't keep saying that anymore. Maybe it will, because visually, yes. Try to describe what's going on. Batman, I think, has his cape caught in a telescope right now. And these two people who were previously frozen are holding on to the telescope. I really did drift for a minute. I'm not sure what's happening here. I, I think, I think, unlike the other films, this is a plot that threatens the entire world. I think maybe Mr. Freeze was trying to harness the power of what looks like Saturn. They're in a planetarium. That's why Saturn, the picture of Saturn is there. But this cannon, this diamond-powered cannon, I think, is supposed to freeze the Earth for him, maybe? I don't know, was this commentary better when I wasn't trying to describe the movie? I feel like they don't film these things in order, I know that, but I feel like at this point, everyone seems so tired. As an audience member, honestly, yes, this movie is probably 20 minutes too long. It probably should have ended much sooner than this. And again, my experience of watching in the theater, everyone thought so. Quietly, people weren't booing this movie, but I definitely remember people were not reacting to this movie. And people had reacted to all three prior Batman movies. I do remember that. This one, I think by this point, it was just politely waiting for it to be done. You know, like if you're at a kid's recital, you know, and after your kid is done, I don't have a kid, but I assume, you know, nephew or something is performed and there's still four acts. You, you stay in your chair because you don't want to be seen as the person who was only there for the kid because then you're not there for the bigger piece but you're not paying attention. You're just sitting there. Maybe if I had a phone, I would have been checking my phone. Or if I had a hangnail, I'd be biting the hangnail. Or if I had even an inclination of suicide, I'd probably take my own life. Because yes, this this has kind of, uh, the heat is on. You know, he said that, and then I was like, how has that not been said yet? Yeah, this is bad. I'm sorry. <laughs> all in all, this goes on too long. It's comical. You can't say it wasn't comical. And I don't know. I don't think you throw a million at a movie without knowing what preceded it. But this doesn't make sense. I don't get this at all. But I like the look of that planetarium. Impractical as it is. Superhero movies have this problem, though. This isn't, you know, this isn't solely Batman. I find, name a superhero film, and I love a lot of them. There's a ton of superhero movies I love, but name one whose finale is fulfilling, that everything that preceded it is rewarding. Never the Batman movies. The ending of these movies are never the best part. 
Captain America Civil War, maybe. That final end is kind of exciting. X-Men First Class, maybe? Or not First Class, Days of Future Past, I think. These are 21st century movies, I realize. But I think what does happen with all comic book movies, The Dark Knight, you know what? Talking about Batman, if we're going to talk about Batman. The Dark Knight, the Heath Ledger starring Dark Knight, that does well. I think they leave that character to die, sadly. Um, But I think The Dark Knight does end well. I think it's big action packed set pieces in the middle somewhere and then you get a not quieter because it's gruesome but a more intimate the entire world is not at a threat finale so that one does it but most of these movies yeah it's it's they're operating under the idea that the audience wants this it wants a hundred ultron drones to rise out of the water and fight it wants a lot of big bright lights shooting down from the sky you know that last summer's wonder woman a phenomenally well put together, unique origin story that then at the end had her fight Ares or the God of War, whoever she was fighting in such an extended computer generated familiar fight. We had just seen it in Batman V Superman the year before. And it's still that as Wonder Woman is a phenomenal movie and that's fine that that's, it doesn't distract from, it doesn't take away from the, the full movie, but it does, it feels you want it to be over. You know, like right now, you, I want this to be over. Not just because I have to pee, but partially because I know it's a two-hour movie. I'm hoping there's like five minutes of credits because it's only an hour and 51 minutes right now and some seconds. I'd have just shooting straight up on cables. That doesn't make sense. I like how no one seems, even though they're all talking about the dangers of the world, everyone's, well, not Chris O'Donnell. Here's the thing. Actually, I just don't like Robin in this movie, but Chris O'Donnell is playing this, he's doing his part. He's not risking you not liking him. Everyone else is kind of blasé. Honestly, I feel like Alicia Silverstone is most, she's doing her own thing, but she's most in on the ridiculousness of this. Maybe it's from being in an Aerosmith video with Steven Tyler's daughter. I think she gets that this is dumb. A little bit of Kristen Stewarty, or maybe Kristen Stewart was doing a little bit of Lisa Silverstone and her understandings of what it, the mechanics of what she was working on in terms of character. I mean, that's the thing. It must be hard to be an actor in one of these movies. In this movie, for example, where you're servicing a comment on these things, but you're you're part of these things. You're the actor. A director can have the external on the outside looking in commentary on it. You know, the, the director can be like, I'm uh, you know, I'm using these to, to, to point out the faults of other films. But when you're the actor in it, you're what we're seeing. So if we don't get the joke or the comment, we just think, as George Clooney felt he was, we just think you're the worst. You're ruining this. And he's not. George Clooney is not ruining Batman. His performance was fine. A Michael Keaton Bruce Wayne would have ruined this movie because this isn't that kind of movie. You know, this is, you know, Adam West would almost fit into this film. And I think George Clooney is doing his thing, not Adam West's thing, but he's playing Bruce Wayne differently. And again, not the Bruce Wayne we want, but it is the one we get. Bravo for not killing off your villains in this one. I guess they kill Bane, right? Because let's see, in, the, in Batman 89, the Joker dies. In Batman Returns, the Penguin and Max Shrek 
dies. And Batman Forever, Two-Face dies. I guess this time around, as we're going to see, I think only, I guess Bane did die. So we can't say they don't kill all their villains, but it's kind of like comic books, your villains don't normally die. Or if they do, they come back. And I guess any of these characters could have come back. But um, but yeah, this movie lets them off. Because I, I feel like of this, Mr. Freeze could have just died. I think they could have killed him, found a way to do it. It would have gotten us out of here sooner because this, I am just not even paying attention to your lines, George Clooney. Jeez. Are there commentaries like this? Do they, do they fade out at the end? I'm trying to think the last audio commentary I actually listened to. I think it was for like Invasion of the Body Snatchers from the 70s. I remember thinking, you know, commentaries for movies that are 20 years old, commentaries for by people who worked on it that were recorded 20 years on, 30 years on, well after they existed. Those are the interesting commentaries. Because of what we were just saying, there's the reflection, there's the changing of time. You can go back and look at what, whatever it was you worked on and through memory, think back, but also just see how does it fit to society. Whereas a commentary done on a movie that just came out, like all the Marvel movies have their commentary on them. Well, not all of them, but the ones that do have a director commentary. And, I, and, you know, that's cool. It's there. But it was recorded probably before the movie even came out, you know, probably in the production stage or maybe shortly after. It, there's no time to really see it as art if you just made it. You know, and I think that's why discussing this movie now is a very different conversation than discussing it 11 years ago. You know, 15 years ago when Batman Begins came, because Batman Begins was the first Batman movie after this. About seven years after Batman and Robin 2005, they rebooted Batman and they did the Christopher Nolan dark, dark take, which I like. But, you know, if you, even if you look at the three Nolan movies, of those three, while The Dark Knight is probably the best, the most well-made movie, Batman Begins is the best Batman movie. In a lot of ways, Batman Begins is the best Batman movie we've ever gotten because it balances out this need for gritty real world with aspects of the comics. You know, that Batman Begins very much wants to be, here's how Batman would exist in a real world, but it's giving you stuff like The Cave the signal, the Batmobile, Ra's al Ghul's weird supernatural aspect. It gives you those things. And I think that one you could enjoy either way. The Dark Knight, a great movie, an amazing performance by Heath Ledger, a very dark, grim movie. Doesn't feel like a Batman story. I like the story, and it feels like Batman in that universe, but I don't see that in the comics. And maybe it's because when we get to, was it The Dark Knight Rises, there's finality to that story. Not so much with Batman Begins, but with the second two, Christopher Nolan was suddenly telling a, con- a, a, con- a contained story. And I think that's great. And maybe that should happen more often. Maybe what we need, and I enjoy the Marvel continuity, don't get me wrong, but maybe what we need are these cycles of storytelling because comic books do it. And I, don't, I didn't realize it as much as a kid, but comic book universes reboot themselves all the time to allow different stories, to allow things not to get stale, to allow working with characters in different realms. I mean, honestly, imagine if Batman was always the Batman from 1938. Like I was saying earlier, I wouldn't have read any of the comics I grew up with because that character to me was boring. Whereas, imagine if Batman was after Batman's backup broke, if Azrael stayed as Batman, and that was always a story. I would find that boring, you know? Or the goofiness of Batman in the 50s. Like, 
we tend to forget as fans of things that most things that exist over a period of time consistently, reboot is the word, I'm sorry, but consistently reinvent themselves, cycle in and out. Songs, bands, music, you know, they exist in a period and they come and go. Batman films should be able to do the same. Marvel is doing a great thing, but I don't think other movie companies need to. I think it fucks with our head a little to expect that everything's going to connect and that if one thing goes wrong, it's ruined forever. We got a dud Justice League movie. You know, not for another five years, at least, probably ten, but we'll get another Justice League movie and someday we'll get one that we like. And if we don't, we've got a Justice League cartoon from the early 2000s that's amazing. And if we don't like that, we've got issues of JSA by Grant Morrison that's amazing. If you don't like that, reach back to the 80s, the 70s. These characters have all of their stories out there. Just fucking find the ones you want. I know that steps on this idea of talking about this movie because, well, because we're talking about this movie and I found a way to not really watch it while talking about it. So yes, maybe this isn't the great movie I set out to make it seem like, but it's better than I gave it credit for. Jill Schumacher, you did not ruin Batman because these Batman films are were never really about Batman as I knew him or as I got to know him. They're just an interpretation. They're just a feel of what maybe something is. And it doesn't have to be that. It won't be. Obviously, we didn't get more movies like this. You know, when the movie works, you get more movies like that. (laughs) And that, in a way, kills that too. But we didn't get another movie like Batman and Robin. Nobody thought to make a superhero movie like that. And you're not gonna, because it didn't work. But on its own, as a piece standing on its own, yeah, I didn't mind it. I liked it. Big question here, are we going to sit through four minutes and 55 seconds of credits together? We are if this kick-ass Smashing Pumpkins song fades out sooner. I do not like Smashing Pumpkins entirely. I like a couple other songs. I don't think I like this song. This is Smashing Pumpkins, right? I think so. Not sure. I'm looking at these names, wondering if there's anyone who's gone on to stuff in the cast. I missed all the main. Well, Senator Patrick Leahy or Leahy, he's been in every Batman movie. Doug Hutchinson, I want to say that he plays a character named Gollum in this. I want to say that he plays Tombs on X-Files. And then he plays a character in Lord of the Rings whose name I don't know. I didn't know he was in this movie. Probably not going to recognize any of these stunt actors' names. Project consultant Bob Kane, I think I've heard of him. This was before Bill Finger would get credit on pieces with Batman. Rick Martin, probably not the Rick Martin I'm thinking of. Well, thank you, though. Thank you for actually having uh, listened to that. I don't know if I'm going to have a lot to say during these credits, so I'm wondering, should I take this moment to maybe wrap up the show also? Are you listening to this as a commentary? Are you only listening to this as a commentary? Of course not. How would you have found this? How would you have gotten this far into it? I wonder. I ask you. Why? How? Still. You see, if it was playing right now, you'd have this music in the background, and that's great. But if you're just listening to the commentary, you just have me. And normally, I guess if this was part of the podcast, at this part of the show, normally there's a little bit of music underplaying it. So maybe I should treat this as a commentary and just keep talking about credits. I'm losing you. I'm losing the audience. That's been the biggest complaint, I think. The show rambles at the end. What show? This show. 20th Century Podcast. Yes, yeah, so let's let the credits run while I do this, and you make of it what you want. 
Uh, 20th Century Popcast is a weekly program, normally hosted by Bob and myself. Uh, this week's just me, but don't worry. I think Bob Bob will be back uh, next week. We'll discuss something next week. Um, and how can you know? How will you know when it's up? How can you hear it? Well, visit 20popcast.com. That's the, uh, the website, the main website for this show. Um, you can always find the most recent issues streaming there as long as links to all of our past episodes. Uh, there's always show notes which have a little bit more to look at and read about about the, 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 the topics that we're discussing. You also find links to things like Bob's, uh, Bob's music blog, uh, superultramegamix.wordpress.com. You'll find a link to uh, Bob's comic book, myexaggeratedlife.wordpress.com. You'll also find both of us on Twitter. I'm at Subcultus. He's at RH Canning. You can follow either one of us there if you want. And if you're on Instagram, look up at Subcultus. That's kind of the semi-official Instagram uh, page of this website. Follow us there if you want. We try to put up pictures and stuff to promote upcoming episodes. Some of those images are fun. Um, But mostly, if you do like the show, if you think you return to the show, why don't you uh, do us a favor? Well, why don't you mention it to a friend? Share it with a friend if there's an episode you particularly like. Uh, subscribe to it if you want to get it every week. You can subscribe to our show on iTunes. You can subscribe to it on Stitcher. You can subscribe to it on Google Play and all sorts of Android devices. There's links on the webpage for that. And if you do do that, if you could go to iTunes, for example, and drop us a little review, you know, give us a whatever star rating, write a little review. We would appreciate that. That helps us. On a personal level, personal level, it helps us know if people are liking the show. And on an egotistical level, it helps get the show noticed more. So if you could do that, I know it takes five or 10 minutes. Um, we try to put a link in the show notes straight to it. Follow that. That would be a huge help. That's how you can support the show now. We've got more things coming up <clears throat> for more ways to support the show in the future. We've got a Patreon page eventually in the works. You can follow us on Facebook. But again, you can just interact with us, you know, on Facebook or on the website, go to pop talk and just drop us a line, say something, say anything. Did you know there's a goo goo doll song in this movie? I'm just looking at the credits now. I did not know there was a goo goo doll song in this movie. Now I'm trying to think of all the movies I know that don't have goo goo doll songs in them. And honestly, I can't think of that many because goo goo dolls have been in almost every movie since that weird angel movie with, uh, Nicholas Cage and Sally Albright from, when Harry met Sally Albright. That's the show, people. These credits are still rolling. That's why I'm still talking. Uh, We're seeing that this movie came out in 1997. I doubt you synced this up. If you did, you're awesome. You're the best. I'll follow you. If you sync this up and watch it as a commentary, let me know, because I'm going to follow you. I'll plug you. I adore you. Until next week, uh, stay tuned somehow, people. Some sort of a catchphrase. Some sort of a catchphrase.